And you're about to hear about why this process of recovery never ends and why we keep on coming back. So I wanna invite my friend Debbie up as she shares her testimony. All right, is this thing on? All right. Um, I told him, don't go long, don't take my time. All right. Oh, there we go. Um, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for um, using me tonight to tell my story, to tell your story of um, your amazing grace in my life. You don't call the equipped, you equip the called. So please just use me, speak through me to touch just one person tonight. In your son's precious and holy name, amen. amen. My name is Debbie and I'm a grateful believer who struggles with alcohol. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I was born in the summer of 1967 in Patterson, California. My mom was 16 years old between her junior and senior year of high school. My dad, or the man that I believed was my dad, was in Vietnam. My mom and I lived in my, with my grandmother on a dairy in Gustine until I was one and a half. At that time, I'm sorry, until I was three and a half. At that time, my dad came back from Vietnam, married my mom, and adopted me. We moved to Modesto where my mom worked and my dad attended MJC, taking prerequisites for dental school. They sent me to a babysitter, babysitter around the corner for a few hours every day, and I had lots of friends in the neighborhood. This would become a, patterns, a positive pattern in my life, lots of friends. As a family, we would sit down every night together for dinner and discuss the events of our day. After dinner, we would play games or watch a family show together. Those years carry memories of being great. Sometime between kindergarten and first grade, my dad was accepted to the University of the Pacific. This took us to Stockton. My mom and I commuted to Modesto every day for work and school. Dinners together as a family began to decrease to only a few nights a week. The following year, a major event occurred in my life. My parents moved to San Francisco as UOP's dental school is there. They didn't want me living in San Francisco, so they sent me to live with my paternal grandmother in Patterson, where I went to second and third grade. My positive world was upended as I only saw my parents on weekends. They would either come to Patterson to see us or my grandmother would drive me to Livermore to meet them. On those weekends, I would, on those weeks, I would spend the weekend in San Francisco and they would drive me back to Livermore again on Sunday evenings to meet my grandmother. I remember so well the pain of those departures. I would chase after their car, crying as they drove away. And my grandmother would try and comfort my breaking heart as we drove back to Patterson. After two years of crying every Sunday night, my parents decided to move me to the Bay Area <clears throat> to be with them for my dad's last year of dental school. They moved to San Rafael so I could attend fourth grade there instead of the city. We lived in a nice apartment complex where my school bus picked me up and dropped me off. The new school in what to me was the big city was a huge culture shock for me. For the first time in my life, I encountered bullies. 
Through my recovery work, I have now recognized that this is where the pattern, where I began a pattern of running from fear and pain through isolation as a defense mechanism. To avoid the mean children, I would go straight into my apartment where often no one was home. And in my attempts to avoid the bullies, my number of friends began to decrease. My dad graduated and we moved back to the Central Valley for good. My parents bought a house in Patterson. They sent me to a private Catholic school in Modesto, St. Stanislaus, where I would finish elementary and junior high. I then went, went next door to Central Catholic for all four years of high school. My family being Catholic brought me up with the truth that there is a God, but there was no real mention of who this God was. So I grew up with this as my spirituality. I knew there was God and I believed in God, but he was in no way personal. I attended Catholic church very irregularly with my mom and the first Fridays of every month while in Catholic school as this was part of their program. My mom had me baptized at birth I, went, I then went to catechism as a child and received my first communion and was confirmed at the Catholic, in the Catholic Church. At the end of junior high, a series of events began that were defining moments in my life. I learned that I was the family secret. My cousin told me that my dad was not my biological father. I was crushed. I didn't believe her. So many painful questions flooded my soul. What? How could this be? Why? It couldn't be true. And if it, he wasn't, then who was? I went to my mom and I asked her in disbelief. Her response was, well, we'll talk about this when we get home. But I knew the truth by her face and body language. Obviously, I could not just let her non-response go. So over the coming days, I tried to talk to my parents about it. But every time I brought it up, I was pushed away by their non-response. As good codependents, they continued to keep the family secret avoided and swept under the rug. Eventually, they thought that they put it to rest when my dad finally told me that my mom was date raped. He had adopted me and that was the end of the discussion. It would be many years later before I found out any more of the truth. This once again made me isolate from the pain because I knew the horrible truth and my parents' cl response clearly sent the message that it was even more horrible because we couldn't even talk about it. And I know ha had no tools as how to deal with this information as a 12-year-old girl approaching puberty. My dad had begun drinking a lot at home and it quickly became evident to us all that we had a new family secret. My dad was and is an alcoholic. As his drinking began, along with the alcohol came the horrible side effects. And when my dad drank, this man who ran from conflict when sober became verbally, emotionally, mentally, and physically abusive. Calling me names, telling me I was stupid, that I would never amount to anything, throwing his empty glasses at me, shattering them against the wall. Often I would run fleeing. Often I would flee running to get away, but he wouldn't, this would not work because he would chase me, catch me, and drag me back inside by my hair. In keeping our family pattern, he never even acknowledged these behaviors, pretending the next day as if nothing happened, only to begin them all over again as he began drinking again the next night. One day, I found some pot in my parents' bedroom drawer. I asked them about it, 
and my dad claimed that a lot of professionals do it. He claimed that it was a stress reliever. He said that it was no big deal. He even said that if I wanted to smoke pot, to please do so at home. I am so sure I wasn't about to get stoned with my parents. It certainly was a permission that no parents should have given their adolescent daughter who was living in the fear of an abusive alcoholic home. Another defining moment, my mom told me she was pregnant. I was furious. I had been the only child for 13 years. How dare they do this to me? In hindsight, the pregnancy was actually a really good thing for them and me because they would quit smoking pot because of the pregnancy. I was 13 when my brother was born. It was when I was 14 that I went to my first high school party. I drank three and a half beers and was throwing up in the bushes. Drinking was certainly not for me until the following weekend when it was available again. I would only drink on the weekends through high school and college. I also experimented a little bit with pot and crank. Here in the freedom of young adulthood, I also began having sex and men became a provider of good feelings amidst the pain and confusion. But I always came back to alcohol as my drug of choice. Alcohol gave me peace and courage, liquid peace and courage. This kept the pain and confusion of my family and adult childhood at bay, early adulthood at bay. In 1993, I finished college with a Bachelor of Science degree in dental hygiene. I got two jobs working in two different offices, and life was good. I began a pattern of going out for drinks after work every day with my coworkers. In 1995, a very special patient walked into our office. He was to become my loving husband, Ray. Ray is a musician, and he was playing at that time at a club called Kickers. He invited me to play. He invited me to come see him play. I went, and the rest is history. We have been together ever since. But as you will hear, it has not been a smooth ride. I found myself dating a musician and hanging out in clubs often, almost all night, staying after they closed. This was a new and exciting phase of my life. To be honest, I felt like I had lived a pretty boring existence up to this point. I decided it was time to let my hair down and live, and live with and with Ray. I set out to paint the town red. Life became one adventure after another. For six years, we drank together a lot and experimented with drugs a little. In the spring of 2002, I found out that I was pregnant with our son and we decided it was time to settle down and get married. In September of 2002, we bought a house and then a month later, we got married. We became, I became a blended family mommy to my 11-year-old stepdaughter, and our son Cole was born one month later. Together, we decided that I would stay home with Cole and Ray would work. Ray worked at a car dealership. The money was good, but the hours were very long. I got lonely. I had gone from a life of clubs and excitement and being out in the public, being around a lot of people on a daily basis with my rock star husband and my coworkers to being at home alone with a little baby completely dependent on me for all of his needs. And like so many moms, I loved my son with all my heart. But on the other side, my life had drastically changed. After a year of nursing Cole, I made a decision that would greatly affect the next two and a half years of not only my life, but the life of my family and those closest to me. 
I decided to make up for the changes by drinking. It quickly became, began to take control. It began with just drinking a few drinks in the evening, waiting for Ray to come home. I easily rationalized that I deserved them. Being a stay-at-home mom is really hard work. Only an honest addict, though, can look back and see how quickly those few drinks in the evening turned into a fifth or more of straight vodka every single day. Before I knew it, I was needing that vodka in the morning just to get rid of my DTs. Then I depended on that vodka throughout the day just to get me through the day. What had begun years before as liquid peace and courage had become my biggest nightmare as it controlled my existence. The denial was thick as I lied to myself that I was taking really good care of my son, even as I was consistently passed out by 3 p.m. every afternoon with him either curled up next to me or being watched by his sister while I slept. Most days I would keep up the denial that things were fine. Really they were by walking waking up at about 4.30 in time to make dinner for my husband, who may or may not make it home. My life was insane and unmanageable, and only now, because of Christ and my recovery, can I recognize how totally selfish and dishonest I had become. But at this point, caught up in my addiction and denial, I was nowhere near ready to admit it. Instead, I became verbally, emotionally, mentally, and physically abusive to both my husband and stepdaughter. I sought comfort, affirmation, and validation from another man. I began to cheat on my husband, and I even drove drunk with my son and stepdaughter every day, putting their lives and the lives of other drivers in jeopardy. In spite of all of this, I didn't, it didn't dawn on me that I had a problem. I told myself and believed the lies that every alcoholic addict has that I could stop drinking whenever I wanted. I simply didn't want to quit. I enjoyed drinking. I liked the taste. I had become my dad. One day while I was at my mom's, I called home and something in my husband's voice told me that my life was about to change. He made me wait until I got home to talk about it. He had found, some, he had found numerous vodka bottles hidden in different rooms throughout the house some empty and some full. He told me that I needed help, and my response was to give him the lies that I believed. I told him that I was fine. I told him that I could stop drinking any time I wanted. I just liked the taste. His response, and I remember it very clearly, he said, we'll see. This only sent up warning flags for me to be more cautious. I needed to be more careful with my bottles, that's all. I couldn't leave empty bottles lying around. I would only keep one bottle in the house at a time. When that one was empty, I had to get rid of it immediately. I told myself I just needed to get more organized within how I managed my drinking. Kind of amusing today, but so sad for me and my family who was caught up in it. Well, my drinking got worse, and my husband and my mom intervened and told me that I needed to, to get into treatment. I said that I would go, and Ray called my doctor for a referral and had me admitted to Oak Valley Hospital. I spent three days there detoxing. Ray had done some research and he and my mom decided that I would be going to Marin Services for Women in San Rafael. It was a beautiful facility overlooking the San Francisco Bay. 
The only problems were that my small group leader had a psych degree and was a social drinker. She never had a problem with alcohol. My case manager had never touched drugs or alcohol in her life, but she was going to manage my case. The even bigger question, the even bigger problem was still me. I was there for all the wrong reasons. I was there because all of my relationships were in trouble, but not because I thought I had a drinking problem. Simply put, I wasn't really ready. Marin Services for Women was like a glorified month-long camp for me. I did all the assignments asked of me. I was kind and respectful, and I didn't give or create or cause any problems. When I got out, I followed their instructions, 90 meetings in 90 days. So I began doing, going to AA meetings, where I got my first sponsor and actually began working the steps. My sponsor began telling me of some new thinking patterns that really stretched me and that I really did not think about much at the time. She told me that if I didn't get that this was a spiritual program, I wasn't going to make it. Bearing the truth of her words, I did not connect the dots in that area, and I stayed sober for exactly 89 days. When I relapsed, Ray got really tough with me. He rented me a small house around the corner. He took my car and credit cards away. He told me that if I wanted to kill myself, he was not going to sit around and watch. He told me that if I managed to stay sober and wanted to see our son, he would bring them over to my place or I could come to the house. Needless to say, I didn't see my son all that often. My response to Ray's healthy boundaries was to sit on the pity pot, isolated and alone, drinking myself into oblivion day after day. This went on for a few months until God, who was not yet a part of my life, intervened and I finally had a moment of reality where fear seized me. In that fear, I imagined a vision where I drank myself to death and I would never see my son again. Ray was left alone, raising coal on his own. The fear and panic that this produced would be my rock bottom. But even in this fear, the alcohol was still firmly in control. My first response was to see if it was as bad as my fears and imagination said it was. Just maybe it wasn't. I made an appointment with my doctor for lab work, hoping against hope that the labs would be normal and show that I was fine. When the results came back, my doctor confirmed that I was, had very elevated liver enzymes and that my fears were realized and in that moment, I made a choice that I wanted to live. This time, my mom helped me to be admitted to Oak Valley Hospital for detox. During those three days at Oak Valley, Ray came in and served me with divorce papers and told me that my best friend's son had just been killed in Iraq. Shortly after he left me, my mom called and asked if I had heard that, about my friend's son's death. She told me how sad it was that because of my sickness, I could not be there for my best friend in her grief when she needed me the most. I was left hurting when she hung up. And if I was not where I was, I'm sure I would have downed a half gallon of vodka. I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I got out, but I had three days to figure it out. I could either go back to my little rental alone or check into another treatment center. I had heard of Stanislaus Recovery Center several times, and I thought I'd give them a call. They told me when I got out of detox to come in for an assessment. 
So I did. However, they didn't have a bed available, and guess what? I started drinking again. About a week later, SRC called and said that they had a bed ready. I called Ray, and I asked him to take me. He said he wouldn't, but he would send one of the guys from the dealership. I showed up drunk, and SRC sent me home. They told me that I needed a medical clearance. Great. I had to go back to my doctor's office in the morning and tell him that I had been drinking again since my hospital discharged. I wasn't shaking too bad, so he cleared me. My driver took me back to SRC, and into residency I went. I went to group after group and seriously began the journey of trying to figure out why I drank. I called Ray several times every day to come get me. Each time, he said loud and clear, no, and hung up. I quit calling after three days. My first weekend there, Ray brought Cole to visit me, mainly to see if I was still there since I had stopped calling. He told me that he was pretty sure that I had called somebody else and left. His even coming to visit totally surprised me because I really didn't think he would be coming. By this point, I had begun resolving that I had lost my family and Ray was done with me. As he and my son left, I watched them walk to the car and my with my husband holding my son in his arms while my son fought to get out with his arms outstretched, reaching for me. One of the counselors came up to me, put his hand on my shoulder and asked if I wanted to talk. I was crying so hard I didn't know that if I could talk. I nodded my head and went into his office. He talked to me for about 20 minutes and told me that the past is the past. He asked me if I had a higher power. He asked me what my higher power was. I told him that it was God. He said, that's good, that's a start. He asked if I had ha asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And I told him that I thought I had. I went to Catholic schools most of my life. Didn't that count? He led me in this prayer and he asked me to repeat after him. Jesus, I am completely powerless over people, places, and things. I put my trust in you to heal me physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I am turning my life and will over to, the, over to you to bring me back to the sanity I was born with. I went back to my room that afternoon a different person. I got on my knees and surrendered my will and my life to Jesus. the only one who could restore me to sanity. That day I was spiritually reborn and the power to change entered my life. Psalm 116, one and two. I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. God knew I was still at risk. So the very next weekend, he had me go to Shelter Cove with Ray. Ray came back. And Pastor David Seifert asked us to close our eyes and raise our hand if we wanted a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. My hand went up immediately. Pastor David led me in the sinner's prayer. And at this point, I was sure when I went back to SRC that I was a new creation. I did a lot of soul searching, which is what you do in treatment. And it dawned on me that I couldn't go home and I didn't want to go back to my rental. Way too many bad memories with great risks attached. I knew that if I was to have any hope, I needed accountability and structure. I talked to my counselor and she gave me a list of sober living homes. 
I talked to my husband about my options, and we decided sober living was a really good choice. But which one? I knew that I wanted a faith-based sober living home, and I ended up calling one that is no longer around but was at the time. The director, Christine, told me that she had a bed for me. She told me to call when she was ready, when I was ready to get out, and she would come get me so I could look at the place and see if it was something that I might be interested in. When I met with Christine, she told me there were only, really only four requirements. A weekly chore, a mandatory house meeting on Friday afternoons, attending church service here at Big Valley Grace on Saturday nights, and attending Celebrate Recovery here on Tuesday nights. Sounded pretty easy to me. I moved in on a Tuesday morning and attended my first Celebrate Recovery meeting here that night. I walked in to Celebrate Recovery for the first time on April 25th, 2006. Celebrate Recovery was in the fireside room then, at that time. I came with a group from my sober living home, which helped me was, but was still a really big step. As I walked in, I was instantly welcomed by a wonderful woman who continues to bless my life today. May any of you be reminded by what followed, how important we can be to any newcomer here. As I walked in, she embraced me, she held my hand, she looked me in the eye and told me that I had come to the right place. She told me that she was glad that I was there, that I was here. What a welcome beginning. The, then worship began and I was awed by the intensity and power that I could feel in the room. There were hurting people just like me, all expressing a need for a help out from an outside these were hurting people like me expressing a need for help from an outsource outside of themselves who I now know as Jesus Christ. I was overwhelmed by the emotion stirred up in me as I looked around the room and saw people openly demonstrating their love, affection, and gratefulness to God. What an amazing ministry. After large group, I ended up in a step study that happened to be running at that time. I was uneasy, but it was a really good beginning for me. Our director kept us coming back as a group, and it would be in that small group that I began some of my healthiest friendships today. CR small groups are a place of true bonding. You learn to be safe to share all the garbage from your past together. You cry together, you laugh together, you have people who hold you accountable, and you love each other together, regardless. It is so comforting knowing that there is a place where you can be totally honest and not be judged. I encourage all of you to attend OpenShare and get into a step study. You won't regret it. We still need step study facilitators, by the way. <laughs> right. Um, there is so much growth and freedom found in these grace-based, safe and loving small groups that together work the steps. For me, it was where true healing took place. My favorite and most difficult step was the third step, which reads, we turned our wills and our lives over to the care of Jesus Christ. I spent way too many years running life my way for this to be an easy principle to apply. But in the community of our small groups and the questions of the books and the accountability of my God 
and my sisters encouraging me, I really found true peace and serenity when I finally surrendered. To, right? Today, I still have to apply this principle in all my affairs, but it remains the key to my continued journey. In my own power, I will only get human results, but surrendered to God's power, I have learned that he will work miracles. On September 6, 2000, September 6, 2006, I completed intensive outpatient treatment at SRC, and my husband asked me to come back home. By the grace of God, I stand before you tonight, and it has been 16 years, 11 months, and 21 days. <laughs> Since my last drink. Much more miraculously, through the 12 steps and the freedom they offer, Jesus has completely removed the compulsion and even desire to drink. My recovery journey is simple. If I am not working on my recovery, I am working on my relapse. One of the great things about recovery are the simple but profound little sayings that have followed change our lives. One is keep it simple. And I work at that by attending Celebrate Recovery every Tuesday night, large group and open share. I, I attend Big Valley Grace Saturday night service as well. In addition to that, I make sure to get into God's word and pray every day. I am working through the steps with one of my sponsees um, for probably the eighth or ninth time. And I continue to take a daily inventory when promptly admitted. And, and continue to take a daily inventory and almost promptly admit it. <laughs> I co-facilitate women's chemical dependency. I have facilitated step studies. I have served on the greeting team, worked at the book table, and been part of the food and dessert teams. I am humbled to be the encourager coach on the Celebrate Recovery leadership team, and I have traveled with the leadership team to, of this amazing ministry to recovery um, leadership networks and several sum CR summits. Um, I would like to thank this amazing team that I get to serve in this ministry with. You have truly become my family. My life is not perfect, and I may not be exactly where I want to be, but I am certainly not where I was. Through my faith, I now know that I am exactly where God wants me to be, right now, standing before you and sharing this story of his grace and power in my life the power to redeem, restore, and heal. To the newcomer, if I'm speaking to you, please hear this. If you hear nothing else I've said tonight, I wanna tell you the same thing that Dee told me that my first night here, you are in the right place, and I am so glad you're here. You are the most important person in the room tonight. I wanna tell you to keep coming back, get into service, get a sponsor, and work the steps. Jesus and the steps will change your life. I wrote my original testimony in July of 2009. While it is my story and it hasn't changed, I continuously get asked one question after I share it. Scott always says, keep coming back, wait for the miracle. And I'm here to tell you that they do happen. 
You see, it was always my hope that I would get to meet my biological. <laughs> my biological father. Some people didn't understand or agree, but it was a piece of the puzzle of my life that was missing. On one of those trips down to Southern California to a recovery conf conference that I went to with some of the leadership team, I attended a breakout session with the author of a book called Father Wounds. It was there that I decided, decided that I was going to do whatever it took to meet my dad. I came home and I told my husband all about my plans. He had res reservations because he didn't want me hurt if I was rejected. I talked to my sponsor and she suggested that I write him a letter. She told me not to call him or show up on his doorstep. I had a really hard time writing a letter. In fact, I wrote 50. They all sounded ridiculous. I kind of put the matter on pause and went on with my life. However, God was evidently in control. A series of events happened over the next few months that, I would, that could only be from God. I happened to be facilitating a step study at that time and I was already working on my father wounds um, and father issues. In January, Susie Miller and my sponsor were speaking at a women's event that I attended. It was about reaching our goals and making our hopes and dreams a reality. In May, a friend's dad's airplane went down in the Sierra Nevadas, and I called him to tell him how sorry I was. I asked if there was anything that I could do. He said, yes, life is short. Go meet your dad. I was talking about a casserole. In June, my grandfather came to visit, as he did every year for Father's Day. He asked me what I was doing about meeting my father. He asked me if I had written those letters, if I had written that letter, and I told him that I had written several, but I hadn't sent one. He said, listen, I want to talk to him. I'm not getting any younger. He was like 90, 92, I think. Um, and I want this resolved before I die. He and I had talked at length over the years about me meeting my dad, and he knew that the time, that time was of the essence for, and I knew that time was of the essence for him. He, oh, he was 90, and not entirely sure he would get another chance. I said, well, okay, Grandpa, let me pray about it. Every time prior that I had prayed about going to meet my dad, I would hear Ecclesiastes 3.1, for everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. This particular time, I heard Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. On June 20th of 2011, a day after Father's Day, I showed up on my dad's doorstep and walked into his heart. Thank you for having me share. Amazing.